I had uh, this little recorder with me. So I just started doing interviews and recording these stories day after day, hearing these stories of the gangs are trying to kill me. Um, my father's been disappeared. Uh, the mudslides have covered our home because the climate change is occurring in Guatemala and we can't farm our fields anymore. Um, and in the midst of hearing all these stories, in the midst of organizing with people to try to actually do something about it, uh, right, which is to, to demand that the Mexican government acknowledge what is happening and try to give people documents, um, I met who would eventually become my co-author, Axel Kirchner, um, who at the time was a 37-year-old deportee from the United States. He'd been born in Guatemala during the Civil War, but he'd been brought to the U.S. when he was one year old. Uh, his, his mom brought him to the U.S. And he grew up in New York. And he's a real New Yorker. I mean, you hear his voice. Uh, he, fortunately, we also got to record the audiobook together. So you can actually hear him read his own words uh, in his voice, which is amazing. I just knew immediately something was different with this guy. I had, I had, four, I mean, it, it, like, this book happened because I met Axel. And, and... Um, we just, I knew I wanted to work with him in some way. Again, I'd never written a book before. I didn't know how to write a book, but I knew that the person in front of me could so poignantly and beautifully and funnily uh, explain their journey in a way that I hadn't always encountered with other migrants. And, and one of the things that I had been thinking about at the time was, why aren't more Americans paying attention to this immigration crisis? And because I'd read a lot of amazing books that go into real detail about the brutality that's happening um, in Mexico, in Central America, on the U.S.-Mexico border, and yet it's so hard to get the American public to care in some sense. And one of the things I, I, that I thought might be different was that when you often tell immigrant stories, um, you have to do a twofold translation process. One is a linguistic translation from Spanish to English, but another one is cultural. Right. Like like you have to ex get an American to understand maybe someone who grew up in this tiny little indigenous village in Guatemala, what that life is like, how they understand their journey, how they understand the violence that, that is inflicted upon them. And that's also a, a process of translation. But what I had with Axel, uh, we could bypass some of that. He was speaking in English and not just any kind of English, but really slangy, compelling New York English. And he was, for all intents and purposes, an American on the migrant trail. He knew less about Mexico than I did at the time. And I, did, I was learning a lot. I didn't know very much at the time either, but I, I was in the very awkward position of suddenly having to explain certain aspects of Mexico, like Day of the Dead to Axel and what that was. Um, and so through that process and through our dialogue, we started thinking about doing some kind of project together, and eventually that became a book. Did you did you meet um, Axel? So he was on the caravan, and and did you meet him at a shelter? Yeah, he. I, I met him on the caravan, um, and I met him in the small town of Chawites, Oaxaca, where at the time the migrant activist Ireneo Mujica was running a migrant shelter, um, and so I met him there on the caravan just outside the shelter one day. He had heard about the caravan. He'd heard about this thing that was happening. He didn't know what a migrant caravan was either. He had just been deported and he heard, oh, a bunch of migrants, hundreds of migrants are all organizing together and marching through checkpoints. So he thought in his mind, okay, if I can get there, maybe I can get safe passage through Mexico. So he was running through the jungle for days trying to catch up to us. And I was the first person essentially that he ran into as soon as he found the caravan. What I've read in your book was just just amazingly uh, 
it, it reads it reads on it reads like a fast-paced novel in a lot of ways but it's not a novel it's it's oh, it's you. uh it's non-fiction and um with a host of characters and uh different um uh different power figures as well right they're playing different roles in in what would make up a caravan or what even makes up the whole kind of what we might call the migrant trail that starts uh you know well oftentimes well before the u.s mexico border well it's sometimes even before the the mexico guatemalan border um and uh yeah so actually i want to just ask you one question about that because you do you do bring up the southern um the the what is it called the programa frontera sur the southern border yeah the southern border program yes um yes quite a bit and really that what i read in in the in border hacker was just this kind of on the ground view of what that is right is there is there um some insights you could give us on on that right what what is uh what is this program and and um how like i've been i often think that you know thinking about the u.s just the u.s mexico border when you think about border issues in the united states you're not going far enough right it's like you have to go further like there's layers to it and a huge layer is this program but could you could you give us some of the insights that that you had from on the ground um, on the caravan and even beyond that with Axel. Absolutely, yeah. And um, just a little side note, I'm actually in a PhD program and my dissertation is on the Southern Border Program. So I have a lot to say about it. Um, But the Southern Border Program started in 2014 under the Obama administration. It happened right after, you might remember in the summer of 2014, there was what we had, we had the quote unquote border crisis in which approximately 70,000 unaccompanied minors crossed into the US. And the democratic leadership at the time um, had a real dilemma on its hands. On the one hand, if it accepted all of these unaccompanied minors, Republicans would accuse them of being uh, of draining national resources, giving undocumented immigrants resources that American citizens should have, blah, 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 all those talking points we always hear. On the other hand, if they rejected all of these children, they would be perceived potentially as heartless by their own voting constituencies, right? And so what the Obama administration did was they struck a secret pact with the Peña Nieto administration, which was the, he was the president in Mexico at the time, well-known right-wing human rights abuser. Just, he had, you know, he's most infamous in Mexico for massacring 43 students or helping organize a massacre of 43 students in Mexico and then helping cover it up afterwards. So the Obama administration strikes a secret pact, the well-known human rights abuser, and says, at all costs, whatever you do, we will send you millions and millions of dollars every year. Just keep Central American migrants out of Mexico. Detain them, deport them, but keep them away from the U.S.-Mexico border at all costs and keep them out of the news cycle. And especially target women and children because they're the ones who are going to be perceived as most sympathetic in the news cycle, right? So this happens in the summer of 2014. It takes a little while to get the funding together. It takes a little while to get you know everything passed. And I arrive in Mexico in January 2015, just as the Southern Border Program is really taking off. Again, it's secret at the time. Very few people know about it. I didn't know about it until I was on the ground. But all of a sudden, 
the whole landscape of Central American migration has changed. You suddenly see way, way, way more uh, immigration officials all over Mexico. Immigration checkpoints popping up on the roads. It's militarized. They have all these brand new gleaming trucks with machine guns. There's rumors of night vision cameras and drones. And um, it literally feels like a war. And I'm working in the shelter in Southern Mexico. And we have people wandering in, in states of severe dehydration. They've been beaten. Some of them have been left for dead by the police and immigration officials. People who now to avoid these new immigration checkpoints have trekked days and days and days through the jungles and the deserts without water or food. And these are areas that are controlled by cartels, controlled by gangs where they can be attacked. And they'd stumble into our shelter, sometimes with the bottoms of their feet walked clean off. And I was shocked. And again, I'm a young guy. Um, uh, and, and I wasn't particularly naive about, you know, the U.S., the U.S. foreign policy often uh, being very detrimental to other countries. And yet I was still just absolutely horrified at what I was seeing. And so when I heard about this migrant caravan, they were marching explicitly against the southern border program as an attempt to try to raise awareness. Now, since then, that's early 2015. Since then, the border program, southern border program has continued in Mexico but it doesn't have now, in the beginning, it actually had a central kind of leadership in Mexico. There's someone running it, there's an office, and within a year, they shut it all down because they were receiving a lot of criticism. So today, the program still continues, theoretically, but without the name, without the title, without the office, without anyone that you can supervise or complain to or say, we don't like this. But it's very, very much still happening today. And um, my goal is to try to uncover what is going on in Mexico and what the U.S. is actually funding. But the signs of it, you know, you can already see signs of it everywhere. Even you in the U.S. media, it might not be reported as the Southern Border Program, but when you see migrant caravans today clashing with police in Mexico, that's part of the Southern Border Program. All the money that goes into funding those police units, they're militarized. They look like they're an army. And literally now, the, Mexico has invented a new armed wing of the armed forces called the National Guard, which is literally an army that's only deployed to stop migrant caravans, more or less. That's funded by the U.S. through the Southern Border Program. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, thanks. Uh, um, well, I, you know, I personally have I've looked into the Southern Border, border Program a bit myself. I went down there. Um, and I was in Southern Mexico in Chiapas and Arriaga, a place where you mentioned uh, in, in oh, your book. Yes, um, yes. And uh, um, in August of 2014, I mean, right when, wow. it, right when, like wow. a month after. I remember a month, it, it was announced in July of 2014, right, right when the yes. un unaccompanied minors um, was making a lot of media and press in the United States. And then two days after the U.S. Embassy um, issues this this cable saying congratulations we've been helping you work <laughs> on this you know we've given you this and that yes. and the other thing so i i um Absolutely. but it was so interesting because what everyone in ariaga at that time was was saying um because i went to the shelter there they were saying that uh -huh. that uh you know people were all around you know around the train yard and then everyone just kind of disappeared right all, all, all yeah so it's uh Absolutely, yeah. People are no longer allowed to ride the trains in the same way. So, so yeah, that that like yeah, that trying to kind of train culture and the way that you understood how to migrate through Mexico, all that disappeared, and instead it became much more splintered and fractured and scary because you didn't know how to get through Mexico in the same way anymore.
Yeah, so I want to, um, so when you're when thinking about that caravan, and, and it's interesting that it was not only a movement to the north, but it had a political message too that was looking directly at this southern border program. But also you, um, during that, you got a lot of insight into the, the inner structure of the caravan, um, like the different people that were yes. working within it, the, the kind of, if I could say, power structure therein, right? Sure. And, um, and mm -hmm. from what I understand, I mean, I want to talk a little bit about some of the threats that, that you've been receiving since the book um, came out, but also how yeah. that connects with the book. And I'm wondering if you could um, talk a little bit about like what were some of the things mm -hmm that you were revealed to you were there any like huge surprises for you in doing the caravan of maybe like even figures that you respected that you that then you realized weren't all that or were a lot different than you thought yes absolutely i had gone down to southern mexico because at the time there's an incredibly famous priest i, I always describe him um his name's father alejandro solalinde um, and I always describe him to American audiences. I say, think MLK, but if MLK was like a Catholic priest in Mexico, right? At the time, he was the biggest human rights figure in all of Mexico. He's still one of the biggest human rights figures today, celebrated in the New York Times, the LA Times, The Guardian. He uh, was rumored to be long-listed for the Nobel Peace Prize. The biggest advocate for migrant rights in the country, if not in all of Latin America. And I said, I've got to go down and meet this guy. I've got to work for him. So I started working in his shelter. And um, not long after I joined this migrant caravan. And the caravan, interestingly, at the time, Solalinde, this priest, the year before, he had organized another migrant caravan. At the time, it had been the biggest in Mexican history. Uh, it was about 1,000 people. And afterward, with the, the implementation of the Southern Border Program, the Mexican government said, never again. You don't get to do this anymore. Um, and if you start another caravan, we're going to shut it down and we're going to deport everyone. So Alinda said, okay, I'm, I'm not going to do that this year then. Well, that didn't sit very well with other activists um, in southern Mexico, one of which his name is Ireneo Mujica. And he has since grown in fame. He's, if you ever hear about a migrant caravan in the U.S., almost guaranteed that Ireneo has organized it in Mexico. Um, and, but this was the first caravan that he really, truly organized on his own. And it was the first migrant caravan that had ever been organized without a priest. Before it was always religious and priests, powerful priests in the area, could help organize migrants and negotiate safe passage with immigration officials and police. Well, Irineo said, screw that. Solalinde isn't doing his job. I'm gonna do it instead. So he organized Mexico's first secular migrant caravan and it set the tone for all other caravans since. So this caravan, you know, exactly what you've already seen in the media. We gather up hundreds of migrants, we march through these checkpoints, but soon enough, we got word that the caravan was being surrounded by immigration officials um, because we no longer had a priest to kind of negotiate our passage through Mexico. Uh, at that point, Irineo started acting very irrational. Um, he was no longer very clear with us about what we were going to do, who he was talking to. And eventually Solalinde was called back in to kind of rescue this, this caravan. And I thought at the time, oh, thank goodness. Like, finally, we have this good guy. You know, Irineo was an unknown guy. He seemed really irrational. I didn't really get his whole deal. And I was like, oh, this wonderful human rights celebrated priest is going to come in and save the day. 
Well, fortunately, eventually, long story short, you know, we get into much greater detail in the book, but Solinde was able to um, not keep everyone from being deported, and the caravan eventually made it to Mexico City. But along the way, I started to see things that didn't add up. One of the things was that um, one night, I walked into Ireneo's bedroom in his shelter in Chahuites, which at the time, again, his shelter was under the umbrella organization of Father Solalinde's humanitarian network. So this is a shelter sponsored by Solalinde, funded by Solalinde, has Solalinde's name out in front. And I walked into Ireneo's bedroom and he was sitting um, semi-naked on his bed with a 12-year-old boy on his lap. Both of them were just in their underwear and he had his hand on the boy's lower stomach. And when I walked into the room, um, I was shocked. I didn't really know what to do. I'd gone in just to grab my backpack quick. And Irineo got up and without a word, kind of pushed me out of the door and closed the door behind me. And it was so shocking. And there were threats of us being deported at the time. And it was just one more thing. And it didn't really compute in my head at the time. But later on with Axel, once I met up with Axel, we started hearing other things going on in Solalinde's network. We started hearing about that the person who ran the day-to-day of the shelter operations in Solalinde's own headquarters, his name was Beto Donis, was having sex with, with uh, women migrants in exchange for favors, in exchange for help with their documents, better sleeping quarters, um, things that you think, you know, if you're an incredibly vulnerable person, you probably don't actually have much of an option to say no. Um, then uh, another one of Axel's travel companions, a, a young migrant who I get into the book, uh, his name is Lalo. He was also received unwanted sexual advances from Irineo Mujica. And then to top it all off, the biggest thing of all was that Axel at one point in his journey had busted his knee and he was unable to migrate. And I made calls to various people to try to get him to Mexico City where I could hopefully get him documents or something like that. Well, Axel, and this is something we actually haven't discussed yet, right? Um, but it's a main, it's a big part of the book. Axel is no ordinary migrant. He is a computer hacker. When I met Axel on the migrant caravan, we had been surrounded by uh, immigration officials. And they were threatening us with deportation, and Father Solalinde was trying to negotiate our safe passage. While that was happening, suddenly the Wi-Fi signal cut out, all of our cell phones weren't working. And Axel realized, hey, I think they're jamming, the police are jamming the signal. Probably, we assumed, because they were about to rush in and detain everyone and they didn't want anyone to be able to call for help. And I thought, oh my God, this is it. Like, I'm here in Southern Mexico, I can't call my family, I can't let them know that this is gonna happen, I'm gonna be detained, we're all gonna be detained, what's, what's going on? Axel rushes away and he tells me after the fact, I don't know this at the time, but he runs into shelter headquarters where Father Solinde is and he says, I need a computer, I need a computer, give me a computer. They give him a computer. Axel is able to hack around the police jammer and get just enough cell phone signal for Solalinde and his team to make the calls they need to the capital, Mexico City, talk with the politicians they need to talk to, and send for backup and send for help. We end up not being detained because Axel can hack around this police jammer. But because of that, Solalinde and some of these other activists see what Axel is suddenly capable of, and they take note. So later on in Axel's journey after the caravan, when he, he gets stuck traveling and he busts his knee and he asks me for help, I call around and this other activist in Solalinde's network, um, who says he runs a shelter in Mexico City, his name is Armando Vilchis. Um, he says, I can pick Axel up, not a, not a problem. 
Well, long story short, he picked Axel up and he takes him back to his quote-unquote shelter, but it's not so much of a shelter. And Axel, Axel was in, he picked him up where in Southern, was he in Southern Mexico? He was in Southern Mexico. He picks him up in Southern Mexico, out actually um, in Chahuites, Oaxaca, where Irineo Mujica is running a shelter, and brings him back to this small town called Metepec, which is essentially a suburb outside of the, the, the city of Toluca, which is a couple outside, hours outside of Mexico City. He says he's running a shelter, but we find out it's not a shelter at all. Armando Vilchis by day is an auto mechanic and he, run, he has an auto shop, but he's outfitted this auto shop in such a way that it has tall chain link fences with barbed wire. And when he, whenever he picks migrants up or he has migrants sent to him, he locks them inside this auto shop and forces them to work on cars all day in exchange just for food. This is an open air auto shop. It's outdoors. Migrants have to live in broken down cars. Um, and if they don't work, they don't eat. And they're not allowed to leave. Um, and suddenly I thought, oh my God, I've gotten Axel enslaved, right? Because this is what it is. He's being forced to work all day long um, just for food. And of course, for Axel, it, well, he wasn't just working on cars like the rest of the migrants. He was being forced to hack Mexican government officials on behalf of Armando Vilchis. And um, I thought, oh my God, what am I going to do? Again, this is a man who is working still today under Father Solalinde's humanitarian network, which in Spanish is called Hermanos en el Camino, or Brothers on the Path, or Brothers on the Road in, in English. So yeah, it, we, we ended up completely by accident, had no intention of doing this, but uh, stumbling into a real uh, scandal, human rights scandal happening in Mexico that no one is talking about. And we've been trying to raise the alarm ever since. Has there been any sort of thing written about it or any sort of documentation of Armando's so-called shelter that that's really a, a mechanic shop? Um, I imagine like right now, there, there are probably people staying there, living in the cars, locked in. Almost certainly, yeah. Yeah, almost certainly right now, there are about a dozen migrants in that shop. There, he receives semi-regular coverage in Mexican media, small outlets normally, about this. And it baffles me because it's framed as humanitarian. And you see these people living in absolute poverty. They don't have adequate plumbing in this place. There's no hot water. The shower didn't work when I was there because I lived there as well to try to help break Axel out. Well, you were locked, um, were you technically locked in there. I was locked in. I Yeah, yeah. So I, I actually, w when Axel was kidnapped by Armando Vilches, because that's what it was, um, I thought, what am I going to do? I can't call the police because I could get everyone deported. And Armando had already told all the other migrants in there, including Axel, that uh, don't try to call the police because I know the police, right? Um, and so I thought, well, I, what am I going to do? The only thing I can do is go there myself. And try to formulate some kind of breakout plan. So I, I called Armando up. I, Axel and I had all these schemes. We talked to each other on the phone late at night. How are we going to do this? What do I do? When do I show up? And eventually I said, I, this, these things, these schemes are becoming so wild and elaborate. They don't make any sense. I'm just going to call the guy up. So I called him up and I said, hey, you know, I've worked for Solalinde in this network. I marched on the caravan. Like I know a lot of your friends. Uh, and Axel tells me that you're taking really good care of him. Uh, I'm an anthropologist. I work with migrants. I would love to come live at the shop, help out how I can. And um, I don't know why, but he said yes. I, my, my, I have two suspicions, neither of which I can confirm, but one of which I think Ar Armando thought he could maybe get some money out of me 
because he often uses migrants uh, to collect donations. And that maybe he, in his own way, actually has convinced himself that he's helping people. He would often say, well, if I wasn't giving them shelter, they'd be out on the streets, right? Um, and so I stayed for about 10 days in the shelter, documenting what was happening. I interviewed all the migrants, I took pictures, I talked with Axel, and we began formulating a breakout plan. Um, and what we decided to do was that Armando had a son who was about my age, who was a party boy, and he lived in an apartment that was attached to the auto shop. And eventually what I was able to do um, was to convince him to have a party at his apartment. And while he was kind of getting ready for it, he was running in to go shower, I was able to more or less distract him so that he forgot to lock the gate of the auto shop back up. So I was, we were all waiting. This is right out of a movie, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, you know, I can still see it now so vividly in my mind. I, he, he closes the gate behind him and normally they always lock the gate. But at that moment, he's so excited to, to party with me, I guess, that he forgets and we're still chatting and I'm looking at the gate. I'm thinking it's unlocked. It's unlocked. And he says, okay, I'm, I'm going to take a shower, man. Don't worry. Like, and soon I would call the girls and I've blah, blah, blah. And I'm just thinking, okay, whatever, whatever. Just keep your eyes on me. Don't look back at that gate. And he goes into his apartment and his bathroom, there's a, there's a window that, that uh, looks out onto the auto shop. So we could see the bathroom light flick on and then hear the sound of the running water. And as soon as that happened, I said, go, 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 go now. And Axel and I and about 12 other migrants were able to break out of the shop finally, hop on a bus and make it back to Mexico City. So yeah, it was it was a crazy time. <laughs> I didn't tell my parents that. <laughs> Imagine there's a bunch of they read the book and said, What what, what was this? We didn't hear it. <laughs> I bet you there's a bunch of things yeah. you didn't you didn't tell your parents. And I yes. should note, like yes. to people listening that yeah, the, all of this is just written with uh in in vivid detail. I mean even more vivid detail than Levi is conveying Neri now, and he's telling you're telling the story. Awesome, um, but uh, <laughs> thank but you. It's, it's uh, um, the breakout, um, the the um, the kind of I guess migrant shelter, but not really. It's almost like a detention center, yeah. but it's really an auto shop. Yeah, like all of these things yes. are just relayed in the pages of Border Hacker. Um, and uh, so how do you think all of this like what you're revealing now is what connects to the to the fact that you're getting some threats now yeah absolutely um so we really focus on four migrant activists who are very prominent in mexico one is Irneo mujica another of course the most famous is father alejandro sololinde a third is Armando Vilchis, and the fourth is someone who we call the attorney, who's also under Solinde's humanitarian network umbrella. But and for various reasons, but mainly because our, our publishers, our own publisher's attorney said, let's not name her. Yeah, we we basically uncover this this you know human rights scandal, um, deep exploitation of migrants for the explicit financial benefit of of migrant activists in Mexico, people who make you know, make a name off saying that they're helping migrants um, became clear to us that it was much more complicated than that. And so right as the book was coming out, I received a death threat. Um, I don't think I can say who, I have my suspicions about who it is, but whoever it is um, was incredibly angry that this book was coming out. They explicitly said that they were threatening us um, because the book was coming out. And they, they threatened to kill uh, my co-author, Axel, 
and leave his body in pieces in the trash, is what they said, uh, which is, you know, a common uh, means of, of, of killing people by cartels in Mexico. So the, the inference here was that they had cartel connections. They also mentioned that the patron, the cartel boss, had been informed of our shitty little book. And um, so the, the, the implication was clear that this is a, someone, a powerful person who didn't like what was coming out in the book, who has cartel connections and wants Axel dead. And after received that, we received that death threat, I reported it all to the Committee to Protect Journalists. Um, and I've been coordinating now uh, with them to try to keep, keep myself safe and keep Axel safe. Various resources have been apportioned to us. I can't exactly talk about what uh, Axel's situation is for his own safety, but I now have a police patrol stationed outside of my house. I had a book launch um, and I had to have a police detail accompany me to the book launch. Um, and, uh, it, it's, it's not for nothing either, because after we received that threat, not long after, uh, someone fished me, um, which phishing is a kind of hacking, you know, it's, uh, they, they send you a picture or a link. If you click on it, that gives them automatic access to your and device. You so, uh, I, unfortunately, <laughs> I, you know, this is the, this is the, like, like the great irony. I'm, I'm, I'm writing about a hacker, I'm in all this hacking stuff, and then I get hacked myself, I fall for the, the easiest thing in the world. I, it doesn't matter, but I, I had been talking with some other migrants and I was expecting some pictures from them and then this strange number, I got, clicked the picture, boom, done. And immediately I thought, I think I've been fished. And within two minutes, Axel called me and he said, I just got the strange text from a number I don't know, I haven't clicked on it yet, did you get the same text? And I said, yes, I did. And he said, you've been fished. Take your SIM card out of your phone, throw it away, log out of all your social media accounts. And I've had to now coordinate again um, with uh, the Committee to Protect Journalists. They've like scanned my phone to make sure I'm not still being uh, hacked. Um, but whoever hacked me went through my phone and the only thing that they did as far as I'm aware is went straight to Axel's contact information and then try to fish him too. And if they had been successful, they would have been able to find his location. And so that tells me, again, that, that most likely it's because of our book. Whoever was hacking me actually wanted to get to Axel. Um, and so it's been very scary, uh, to be honest. And, and we are fortunate to be working with the Committee to Protect Journalists. They've been very generous with us. Um, and we're staying as safe as we can. But, but the things that we are exposing in our book uh, sometimes it's hard to communicate to American audiences, but in Mexico, it is a big deal. These are incredibly powerful people. Um, Father Alejandro Sololinde now, uh, it's well known that uh, after the, Mexico's new president was elected, um, Andres Manuel López Obrador, or AMLO, um, he was originally, uh, AMLO originally appointed Sololinde to run the Human Rights uh, Commission uh, in Mexico City, but... Um, it ended up being because he was a priest, it was unclear constitutionally if he could hold that office or whatever. But he is now perhaps the most powerful unofficial advisor that AMLO has. He advises him on his immigration policies. He advises him on the Southern Border Program. So we have someone who, uh, who is an incredibly powerful person. Armando Vilchis routinely boasted to me that he knew senators in Mexico, that he knew congressmen, that he that would do him favors. Um, and so these are not just your kind of ordinary average American activists who are on the ground and community leaders. These are people with connections to the very elite of Mexico. 
and they're looking, someone is looking for, for Axel. How long do you think you'll be in this kind of precautionary? Um... That's a great question. Um, right now, the book, you know, we've received this death threat, we've received these hacks, um, but the book has not, because it's written in English, um, it's just starting to get picked up in Mexico. I've just been contacted. Is by it going to get uh, translated into Spanish? Oh, I, I would love it. Um, there's, I don't have anything definitive to say yet, but we are looking for, for translation, like translators right now and a, and a publication. But we have started to be contacted by these Mexican outlets saying, whoa, what is this story? And, you know, it's, it's almost kind of in the beginning, if you hear about it and maybe you don't read English, you think this sounds too fantastic. Like I must have misunderstood what this book is about. This gringo is running around with this New York deportee and they've suddenly stumbled upon this the biggest human rights scandal and in, in, you know, however many years in Mexico. Um, and so we're trying to say, yes, we have like, this is real. Um, but we're in a very, very strange situation right now in which the U.S., our U.S. audience doesn't quite understand how big of a story it is in Mexico. And in Mexico, we haven't been able to translate it into Spanish yet. So we're at this interesting moment, but I anticipate as uh, that interest will probably pick up here. And if interest picks up, I wouldn't be surprised if we receive more death threats and have to be continue to be cautious. Yeah, so we'll, we'll definitely keep an eye on that. And please let us know if, if we can be of any help um, uh, Thank you. along those lines. But I wanted to end with one last question for you. And that is another um, big, what I consider to be a huge theme in the book. Um, and that is the concept of love and the concept of, uh, mm -hmm. um, more specifically, your love with Axel. You know, the... the you're talking about all the stuff you've been talking about, and then there's this bond between you and Axel that is also this, it's, it's, a, it's a very strong, powerful narrative thrust um, through, through the book. And maybe we could just, um, at, you know, kind of finish today's part of the interview on that note. And if you could speak to that just a little bit. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much for asking that question. Um, uh, yeah, it, it's kind of, it's hard when I'm talking about the human rights abuses and things we've uncovered and the hacking. Um, it's hard to also talk about that. Yeah, what, the way I see this book first and foremost, in a certain sense, is actually as a romance. Um, I wrote it with the structure of a romance. Um, it's a romance, romance between two straight men, and it's platonic, but there is a deep brotherly love, we could say, uh, uh, it's friendship, something deeper than friendship that, that I try to talk about and write about why I care so much about Axel. And um, I, it, was, it was a very strange thing for me in the moment to meet someone who felt so different to me on paper, right? We have this young, white, Southern, I'm, I'm originally from a small town in Georgia, um, kind of academic guy. And then you have this Afro-Latino New York hustler. It's not two people that you think would, uh, would become best friends. But right from the beginning, um, Axel and I just shared something. I think part of it was being on this migrant caravan and feeling so out of place and lonely. And I was there for the ride and I was there for the struggle, but I was also different from everyone else. And, uh, and of course, um, I spoke Spanish, but Spanish is my second language. And, and so it's a kind of confusing and alienating time to do something like this for the first time. And so then suddenly to have Axel there with me, who also not only spoke English, but, but had that cultural sensibility of 
what is going on? Like, you know, we really bonded very quickly originally, but then it went much, much deeper than that in, in a way that I can't quite explain. And the only thing I can say is that is, that is part of how I see the foundation of, of politics and political demands is a deep, almost unexplainable bond that you have with others that makes you risk something of yourself for them. And I deeply, deeply believe in that. If there's one message I can get across with this book is today in a moment of mass militarization of the U.S. border, mass deportation, mass incarceration and policing in the United States, climate change. We're worried about fascism on the horizon and everyone is saying, what are we going to do in the U.S.? What are we going to do? It feels so hopeless. It feels so overwhelming. And and in this, in, I, I don't want to mitigate those things because it does feel sometimes helpless and overwhelming. But when I'm with Axel, when I was working with Axel, when we're together, it doesn't feel hopeless. You can do something, you know, and that something means sometimes risking something of your own personal safety or your own financial gain, which is very hard in the U.S. because we're, we're told, well, politics should be safe and you should vote every four years. Or if you're a really good citizen, you vote in the midterms or whatever. And you, sure, vote. It, yeah, absolutely. But if we want to change something as brutal and horrifying as mass deportation, it's not going to come from voting. It's going to come from risking something of ourselves, living our lives with the people who are being locked up, who are being deported, and demanding over and over again that they be listened to, that they be respected, and that they, they belong in our society. And that's, that is what I want to really get across in my book and why I feel that love for Axel and why I'm willing to risk something of myself to do that. Um, and it's not just about me either, right? Because Axel is risking something. He's risking even more of himself. He could be killed for what he's saying about these people. You know, at least I'm white, American, I have some protection. You know, it's, it's much more unlikely that they will kill me than Axel. But Axel's making this demand because he believes in a different kind of world. And I'm so inspired by that and by him. And I think if he's going to do that and he's going to risk something himself, why shouldn't I too? I'm here with him. I stand up alongside him, not for him, but alongside him. And who knows what will happen, but I think we have to do it anyway. I thank you uh, kindly, Levi Vonk, and um, and thank you, thank you again for writing your book, Border Hacker. Thank you, Todd. And um, and I just encourage everyone to sit down thank with you. this book and read it. It's it's one of those page turning books that it's it's one of those books that's actually very difficult to put down, and it's a book that when you do put it down, you're like, when can I get back to it? When I, I want to get back to the book to keep reading it. So it's, it's, it's very highly recommended and um, thank you. The Border Chronicle is reported by Todd Miller and Melissa Del Bosque based in Tucson, Arizona. This interview is edited by me, Brenna Mater and Alara. If you like what you're hearing, please like us on your favorite podcast platform. It really helps others find the show. You can read and listen to more local border reporting on our website, theborderchronicle.com.